Good morning, and welcome to episode nine of the Harmonious Homeschooler. Today's episode is entitled, Why Isn't This Working? Even such stellar models of home education as ourselves, from time to time, will run into problems and challenges. And so today's show is entitled, Why Isn't This Working? And we are gonna to try to answer some questions about how to tackle common problems you may face when attempting home ed, and we're gonna offer some solutions. But before we talk about these pitfalls, I did wanna point out very, very specifically that overall, unless that we say that we are, we are not talking about what is being called distance learning for school districts that are responding to COVID. Um, this isn't something that any of us have any experience with. And I think we're all sort of hoping that schools come up with something better, particularly for very long, young children than a model that requires so much time in front of screens. Um, so just bear that in mind that I think a lot of the things that we're talking about really require you to actually be homeschooling and not necessarily doing school at home, which is a distinction we make. Um, anyway, the first thing that we would like to talk about, just because we've heard it from quite a few parents seeking advice and information, is what to do if it feels like every moment is just a misery and that there's tension in every moment. Lots of parents have reported, at least to me, that they're feeling totally overwhelmed by school their kids are going to war with them. They have no interest in the structure or the work of what the students are supposed to be completing. And this seems to be something that homeschool families can encounter from kindergartners all the way on up through high school. So in working toward this type of problem, we've sort of tried to put together a list of questions. Um, but I did wanna say that pushback is not guaranteed experience for everyone. And Nisha, who's been homeschooling her kids since the very beginning, doesn't experience it at all. So I want her to talk a little bit about why. Yes, I don't have any pushback with my children whatsoever. Right from the get-go, I strongly believed in mutual respect. So from the beginning, I've honored my children's wishes and their learning temperament that we've discussed about earlier. I have a set, quote-unquote, plan, which is not a schedule, but just an outline of what we need to accomplish. It's loosely planned by the girls and I based on the curriculum we're using and what they wanna do with each subject. And we kinda set it up in 12 weeks at a time. Then, like I think I've mentioned before, we are pretty much go with the flow. So I don't demand my girls to sit down and have to complete certain subjects at certain times. They know my wishes, which is 15 minutes minimum of math a day. I prefer, because I'm not a morning person, that they not practice their musical instruments at six o'clock in the morning. It just makes for an angry mommy. Um, just like I respect their wishes, when I ask them what they want to accomplish for the day, my youngest says, I'm going to tackle Latin first, and then I'm going to do my math. I'm just not feeling science today. I respect that. And this caused more flu um, fluidity in our lives, allowing for the ebbs and flows of life to happen. So there's no pushback that they don't want to complete something because they've already designed their own learning path. And to be honest, all the work gets done by the end of the 12 weeks, so it's never been an issue. That's so amazing. I think, yeah, that's incredible. It's really interesting because it's this idea that 
you know, the structure of mutual engagement has been created from the very beginning. Um, but I think a lot of us who have children who may have been in school or who don't have such a positive experience with learning have this these pushback issues. So we wanna talk a little bit about that. Um, and the first thing I would say is that you may wanna take a look very closely at is what your children are being assigned to do developmentally appropriate for them. And if your kids are fighting you every step of the way, you may be expecting too much based on your child's developmental age and their capabilities. And that kind of across the board pushback, I don't wanna do school, I don't, I'm not interested, this is boring, this is stupid, is in my opinion, the, pretty much the number one indicator that a child is not really ready for whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing. But the wonderful thing is that as a homeschooling family, you and your child get to figure this out on a very individualized basis. You have the luxury of sort of saying, okay, like we're not gonna study that this week. We're gonna study something different. What do you guys think about this? I completely agree with you there. And the developmental appropriateness conversation is one that I have with people seemingly continually. It's probably the number one asked question from homeschoolers all the way through the families that are experiencing this distance learning, which is taking place now as a result of coronavirus. And again, I do want to point out, I know it was mentioned before, but this question of developmental appropriateness really is very applicable to this type of screen-based distance learning that's unfortunately having to take place right now. So we don't have an answer for that because there are requirements that have to be met. You know, you're not official homeschoolers at that point, you really still are at the mercy of the schools that you're enrolled with. So you do have to meet their requirements. Just know that, you know, our hearts kind of go out to you in that situation because there isn't really any good advice that we can give you there. But for families who are officially legally homeschooling and do have the flexibility and the freedom to make those changes, to recognize that that pushback that you're seeing is very, very likely the number one indicator that your child just isn't ready for whatever you want them to be doing. So keeping that in mind and being flexible and willing to make changes is critically important. So I would, we'll talk a little bit about some examples of how to put this idea into work. And um, one of my favorite things when my kiddos were little was what's called often called natural math. So instead of putting the focus on drilling numbers or doing worksheets for second and third graders, um, geometry really comes into it. We're playing with blocks, using tangrams, working on other mathematical projects, like can you build this bridge? Things like that are gonna create the basis for mathematical understanding and your children will be learning, but it isn't something that, well, it is something that is de developmentally appropriate. Where sitting down is often not particularly developmental appro developmentally appropriate. Um, Nisha, I want you to talk about oral reading because you always have like cool things to say about this. Jump in. Yes. Um, oral reading, I find is a big misstep that I'm passionate about that a lot of new homes parent, homeschooling parents miss when designing and looking at curriculum choices. A lot of parents come to me looking for reading lists and proclaiming that their reading material is too easy for the child. Um, that, that they read at a much higher independent level. And this is where they want to make their focus. Um, 
Morgan um, constantly mentions asynchronized development. Um, and this is a perfect example of it because there's so many studies, like the one published in Front, um, Frontier Psychology Journal in like 2015, that shows that children on gener in general, most of them, do read silently grades above their reading level. However, they cannot read orally the same books because they actually comprehend way below grade level. Um, taking inappropriate meanings and contexts, contexts within the literature due to errors in syntax from enunciation, from dictations and speech. Um, the joke in our house is always um, regarding the Oxford comma. There's, um, there's a funny one with um, strippers, JFK, and Stalin. And depending on where the commas lie depends on who's actually the stripper. Um, easy <laughs> Googling. I like, yeah. let's eat grandma and yes. let's eat grandma. Yeah, that's <laughs> the one that comes to mind when I hear it. Um, but this is seen as a clear struggle when answering questions and being able to actually talk in depth about a subject. And a lot of pushback that a lot of new parents are seeing, new homeschooling parents are seeing is because the child truly doesn't understand what they're reading. Just because they can read it doesn't mean they should read it is my kind of motto in life. Um, and this can be easily ramified by having your child constantly um oral reading books and recipes throughout the day to you and making the corrections on sentence structure and enunciation and speech take place naturally throughout the day. So huh. this is actually something that I think is really important too. And maybe because that my family uses literature-based curriculum, which is a really common type of curriculum that a lot of families use. But the most common question I get when people are questioning placement is, you know, my child reads three grades above grade level in first grade. So should I buy this third grade homeschool curriculum for them? And my answer every single time is absolutely not. Because being able, like you said, Nisha, to sit down and read a book to yourself is not the same thing as being able to read that book out loud, understand really truthfully what is being conveyed in that message. And like you said, it being appropriate to their overall development. And the example that I use is, you know, with my own child in second grade was reading at an eighth grade level. Well, an eighth grade level book is To Kill a Mockingbird, but I'm most definitely not going to give my seven-year-old To Kill a Mockingbird and expect him to take away the same message from that book that a 13-year-old would take away. So parents, I think, often forget that. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked before about um, my son and his horrible encounter with Lord of the Flies. It was just emotionally devastating because he was way too young to be reading it. Yeah. So another thing about reading and writing, well, more about writing that I did want to add is that I have spoken to a lot of parents who talk about how their seven, eight, nine-year-old boys are struggling mightily. They can't write an essay writing is so hard. They won't sit down. They don't want to sit down and write an essay. And I think for the vast, it's worth understanding that for the vast majority of children, this will work itself out in time. If your child enjoys reading and being read to, they understand what they're hearing, but can't write things down or, you know, really just hate, say that they hate writing, 
it has a lot to do with the physical connections that need to be made between the brain and the hand and the mouth and a whole bunch of other stuff that isn't really about writing. If they can't write it down, it's because they can't. And there are a lot of different things you can do to sort of get around that. I know, Morgan, you've got a kiddo who has a hard time with writing. What do you do? I actually have two. And the reasons for, for their difficulties in writing are different. My, my, my oldest has sensory processing disorder. So that is tied directly into what you said about brain connecting to hand, connecting to you know mouth if it's something that they're speaking and transferring into words. My other son was diagnosed with dysgraphia. So dysgraphia is just an actual disorder where there is this roadblock to writing. So the tools that we've used and we use for both of them is the dictation and transcription method. So um, my kiddo with dysgraphia will tell me what he wants to write because there isn't a problem with that. He can verbalize exponentially more than he's capable of physically writing down. So he tells me I write it for him. We bought a giant whiteboard on wheels and I can write down exactly what he's telling me to write down. And then he can look at that and put it on paper. So it's still his words. It's still the same concepts, the same ideas that he wants to convey. I just helped him formulate it into what he needed it to be to get it down. Um, and the same thing worked with my older son. He has now made exponential progress. He's older and can write on his own now. Um, so that I'm, that's sort of the proof is in the pudding kind of thing that the dictation and transcription really worked to help him get past that roadblock when he was younger uh, and really push through those physical writing challenges and be able to do it independently now. Yeah. And again, I would emphasize to parents that this is the opportunity that you're presented with by homeschooling is that you're able to take the time to sort of figure out how to handle these challenges in ways that are going to have positive ramifications for your students well into the future. Um, so another question I think is worth asking if your kids are having a hard time is, are they physically ready to be doing the work that they're doing right at that moment? And the smartest thing that we ever did was to encourage our youngest to basically sleep through puberty. His oldest brother started in high school at a private school that was really cool. It was had a great community and, and the arts were funded really well and it was structured really nicely. And so we decided to enroll our seventh grader and this was a huge mistake, huge. Um, I think puberty for a lot of kids is a physical cataclysm for about six months and having them get up at six o'clock in the morning and be in an environment where he was expected to do a lot of executive thinking just made him miserable. He was rude, angry and exhausted and so unpleasant. So um, we had a meeting with teachers and we were told that he didn't have the right attitude to keep track of these six different sets of logins, homework websites, assignment due dates, um, this long kind of complicated rotating schedule. And so we just made the decision to bring him home and from about mid-October to March, he slept from 10 p.m. to 11 a.m. every single day. But we got our sweet and funny kid back from this awful, surly, angry child. And it turns out that he could happily do all kinds of things 
um, help around the house, do his schoolwork, participate in volunteering, as long as it was from noon to 10 p.m. And that's a perfectly reasonable work day for anyone. And it just was a really important learning experience for us that like there is a physical component to youth and growing and development. And if you honor that and make space for your kids to have that time, you can really turn around difficult situations. Absolutely. And even before puberty, this is something that we experienced with my young kids. We had the exact same experience when we withdrew our oldest from public school in second grade. Uh, he's always been a big sleeper. Literally the entire first year of his life, he was in bed by 530. And if we weren't able to facilitate that, we paid for it in a major way. Um, so, you know, we had to, we didn't eat out at restaurants for an entire year because we had to go home and have make sure that he was in bed. So I don't think we realized how crucial that need was for him until we gave him the ability to go to bed when his body was ready to go to bed, which in second grade was at like 6.30 at night, and then wake up in the morning when his body was ready to wake up, and it was like somebody flipped a light switch. He was completely different, so enjoyable, and it was like he could be the, the little boy that he was and wasn't being forced to change, you know? So cool. So Nisha, what do you think about this question of physical readiness? Um, I think it's a really, really good point. Um, I really strongly believe in emotional and mental equality and balance in education. I know for a lot of our listeners, that sounds like a lot of BS mumbo jumbo. If you haven't realized yet, I have a, I have a degree in psychology. But um, I found that it's really cr crucial in how I approach my girls' education. How do people, how many people can actually say they sit back, observe, and document their child's behavior? Do you see a rhythm to it? Do you recognize when you're asking too much because they're overstimulated or they're overtired or just not feeling well? Um, after all, I have two teenage girls. So the big shift on how I instituted learning in the younger years to now was honestly their menstrual cycle. And yes, before I go any further, I've talked to both of my girls and they're all PC and all okay about me discussing this. So You're good. <laughs> good yeah, to go. that's really wonderful. <laughs> um, the girls' mental capacity and output has a direct correlation on their hormonal chemistry. For my oldest, right before the first four or five days of her cycle, her math, and all, honestly, five days into her cycle, her math and science bites. I mean, they have it's riddled with missteps, lack of observation, and you can tell she's just not on her game. She gets super annoyed with this and discouraged with herself, and it's honestly really heartbreaking to see because she, I don't think she should be these are her favorite subjects and I don't want her to be frustrated with them because she's not up to the task. So we decided, Oh, uh, three years ago now that she, during her, during this time period, she just focuses on writing and reading. Um, and what comes out of her, because a lot of writing and reading is internal that, her material is spot on. It's like A plus material. She feels good about herself, her education, and she naturally focuses on math and science the other days when she's feeling better. 
this is giving her a positive educational experience without any negative stressors of or sense of self because she mentally cannot process externally what she already knows. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it yep. makes complete sense. But um, but you can apply this to anything. Um, so say if you have a son and his name's Charlie and every Thursday he can't get out of his way and struggles with German. Okay. It's constantly a battle. He just can't focus and get his work done, but he does fine on Monday and he does fine on Friday, but you don't get it. And you're frustrated with him because he's not doing the work and he's frustrated because you're just not getting it, mom. Um, it's a really a time to step back and reevaluate, look at what's going on maybe Tuesday or Wednesday or even Thursday morning. That's making this so difficult. Um, for a friend of mine, it turns out that every Wednesday, Charlie has drama practice in the evening. So, which means he's going to bed later, which is taking him longer to come down off of his high in the evening from seeing his friends and practicing, which is learn which is leading then to falling asleep at a later time. He gets up at the same time every day. So he's overtired. And I like what Sylvie was saying, he's struggling and he, it's not doing him any good on Thursday. So my suggestion is give him a pass. He'll do it on Friday, but truly homeschooling is that simple. If you're finding this roadblock to observe why and then make adjustments within your daily life. So important. I think the focus on flexibility is everything, right? That's probably the biggest takeaway from this conversation. Um, so one more thing we want to talk a little bit about, but this is probably a whole show, is materials. And is the material that you're using interesting and engaging to your students? This is the time. Like you've got the time. Figure out what your kiddos are interested in and what sparks their imagination and excitement. Um, a lot of home, specific home education programs are gonna give you a large amount of material that you're supposed to cover, but you still have the flexibility to place emphasis. So if your child loves science, spend that time on the science projects, write your essays about scientific topics, learn the math that goes with the science you like, bring your focus onto those things that excite your student um, and look around. I know we've talked about Morgan's favorite thing, which is you're dating your curriculum, you're not marrying it. Mm -hmm. Look around for stuff that turns them on. It's just so important um, to make learning exciting, make it fun, make it be about something that they want to do for them. Absolutely. And pay attention to learning temperaments. I know many new, I think Morgan, you had mentioned this in the first episode that you bought a box curriculum just to get you started until you got your way through the water. And a lot of new parents do that, which is perfectly okay. Um, but as we touched upon in episode six for our new listeners, um, believing, I believe in child learning needs to be, a child is willing to learn anything under the right conditions. So let's take something from a high school level at this point. Um, how about Moby Dick? So a literary child will love reading a book reading this book they'll snuggle up in a corner and then during the day they'll talk to you about the psychological turmoil of Ahab's psyche called monomania and this will affect them deeply with regards to his, fo his focus on a singular objective with this elusive whale and he's willing to risk everything for it um, they're going to be totally engrossed and really attached to the book 
auditory learners won't be able to read the book, but they can listen and then discuss the subject with you um, after the fact. However, for hands-on learners, like what Sylvie is talking about, they're not going to sit down and discuss the psychological turmoil of AHEC, because let's be honest, they're not going to be interested. Um, and you should expect your child at this point to procrastinate for answers. So instead, to keep them engaged in what they're learning and to get through the Moby Dick, you are going to throw them into the year 1851. So what I suggest is taking them to old whaling ports, to museums, teach them how to make whale oil, th learn to throw a harpoon, learning the economic and monetary values of whaling. Um, for other kids, they might find it really interesting in understanding how to find the whales and making navigational instruments and comparing charting routes that ships found where they found the pods of whales to harpoon and then where they brought them back to sell their cargo. They're going to be more happy with you with this material you provide and they'll be able to write and draw from their experiences because this stuff to them is really cool. Whereas if you go back to the literary child, they're going to find these projects and these adventures kind of tedious, uneventful, boring, and you'll lose their interest within what, maybe five or 10 minutes of showing up. I can testify because we, what do you want to know about whaling? We've done all the whaling things. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't actually rendered whale blubber, but it, it did come up. That's too um, funny. <laughs> We did practice throwing an axolotl once, which was super cool when we were studying that about ancient cool. history. Um, and honestly, too, you know, using the science example above. So you really can cover other subjects with just a single topic. So, you know, related to science, English and language arts can be reading books about scientists. You know, social studies and history can be learning about history through the lens of science. Um, we did two whole years of ancient history. We're actually embarking upon a third full year right now and covered every single subject with just that one topic. And the history of science is amazing. Um, as any of the Steiner-oriented folks will, will know, look up what phlogiston is. And I won't say anything because you have to look <laughs> it up. It's super funny. Um, okay, so I think we have quite a bit still to cover, and we're almost out of time. And I guess we're going to just talk a little bit about managing expectations and then wrap it up. Um, I think it's extremely common to expect more from our kiddos than they're capable of giving, especially when it comes to academics. And I think we've tried to talk about all of these, what developmental appropriateness, um, the idea that children are children, they're not fully formed adults. And so they need us to kind of help them, right? That's what parenting is. Um, things are struggling, kids are struggling with all kinds of things, puberty, emotional regulation, the weather, there's so many things. And it's really important to look a little bit deeper when you see things like negative attitudes, excess emotion, or resistance to, to what they're doing. Um, so yeah, tying right back into managing your expectations, I think the most important thing you can do is just ask yourself why. You know, why are you asking them to do what they're currently doing? Why are they giving you pushback? And really just sitting down and feeling that out and being able to recognize that maybe you might be in the wrong a little bit. Um, being able to admit that what you're 
asking and what you're expecting just isn't going to work. And admitting that and figuring out a way to do something else is super okay. Not even, not only just okay, but like welcome. Everybody will benefit from that. Absolutely. So um, I just want to wrap it up a little bit by talking about how I think um, Morgan, we were talking about this earlier that like your state requires core subjects to be covered, but as long as you're covering the core, you're not really required to study any specific thing. Right. It's actually not my specific state, but I'm in Delaware, um, right on the Maryland state line. And I have friends who live in Maryland and we homeschool together uh, through the the very small co-op that I teach. So for example, the state of Maryland requires that certain core subjects be covered every year. But what you do within that subject really is totally up to you. So history can be anything from prehistory to the history of zookeeping in Botswana, which I don't actually think is a class. Just It's just illustrating that you can get creative here. Music can be anything from learning about, you know, actual famous composers to learning how to play the kazoo. You know, you can really think outside the box. And once you're able to do that, you can find educational value in nearly anything you do. So recognizing that there are an abundance of ways to cover a subject that you might be required to cover. You don't have to specifically do one thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's important to point out that while we think it's important for kids to be exposed to a variety of subjects, different topics, different lessons, it's really okay for them not to be that interested in something and not pursue it. So like nobody becomes an astronaut after elementary astronomy. Well, not nobody, but some people... (laughs) Most people don't. Right. And I'm sure there are quite a few people who didn't take those courses, but ended up in those fields as adults. Certainly my husband's an airline pilot. He was a classics professor. Yeah. Who at some point just said like, no, this isn't what I want to do. Right. Yeah. So life is winding road. Um, We are going to wrap it up because we were just about out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an interesting conversation. If you have questions or you disagree with us or you agree, please let us know on our Facebook page at The Harmonious Homeschooler. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye.